You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. We're going to be looking at the topic of men and women today. How are they supposed to relate in Christianity, in a Christian marriage, in a Christian home, in the Christian church? Normally, this is seen as the egalitarian, complementarian debate. And to discuss this, I've brought on Andrew Bartlett, who is the author of Men and Women in Christ, Fresh Light from Biblical Text. In 1973, he got his B.A. in Law from Oxford. And in 1974, he was called to the Bar of England and Wales and practiced until 2019. In 1988, he was a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. And in 1993, appointed Queen's Counselor. From 2001, various part-time judicial positions in the U.K. were practicing Practice as a barrister were heard by him. In 2012, he got his BA in theology from the University of Gloucestershire. So I probably butchered that, but okay. He currently works as an international arbitrator, and he didn't grow up in a Christian family. He became a Christian as a teenager, and he served in various churches as an elder or church warden. So, Andrew, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Uh, when you say doing what I'm doing, do you mean the law side or the theology side? Why not both? Well, uh, the law side is fairly easy. Um, mm-hmm. When I was at school all those years ago, I mean at, uh, the equivalent of high school, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I sort of got tired with all the subjects we were doing. So when I was going to go to university, I thought, well, why don't I find something different to do that I haven't done before? Mm-hmm. So uh, I chose law knowing nothing at all about it. <laughs> I went to Oxford to do law. But then when I was doing it, I found it was actually rather interesting. <laughs> and I've been mm-hmm. in it ever since. Mm-hmm. So um, after Oxford, I became a barrister, as you've mentioned, and I practiced at the English bar until very recently. And now um, I'm doing international arbitration. I wonder if I should say what that is, as a lot of people don't know. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. Okay, well, you know, suppose you're a Chinese contractor and you're going to build a road in an African country. Mm -hmm. You make a contract with them and you think, well, but what happens if we have a disagreement about something, a dispute? Mm -hmm. The uh, Africans don't want to go to court in China and the Chinese don't want to go to court in Africa. So instead, they write into the contract a clause which says, we'll go to arbitration. Mm-hmm. And uh, that means usually that each side chooses one arbitrator and the two arbitrators choose a chairman. And then that's three lawyers who decide the dispute for them, just as if they were judges in a national court. Mm-hmm. But they don't actually belong to any national court. Mm-hmm. And then there's an international convention called the New York Convention under which the decision is then enforceable in most countries in the world. So people come to us from all over the place and um, bring us their disputes and say, would you settle them for us? And then we have hearings just like in a court hearing, except it's in private, and we decide to dispute for them. So that's the arbitration, and that, of course, means a lot of cross-cultural stuff and it means a lot of trying to understand what people meant when they wrote letters, Mm -hmm. when they wrote wrote emails, what they actually had in mind at the time, And that's a little bit similar in some ways to trying to understand a letter in the Bible because it's different culture and you've got to try and work out what was in the mind of the author and why he said what he did. So how did you get interested in theology? Well, as you said in the introduction, I became a Christian when I was a teenager and I've been a Christian ever since. 
and uh, I thought it would be interesting not very long ago to do a degree in theology, so I did that in my spare time. Mm-hmm. And then um, I enjoyed it very much. So here I am. Okay, we're talking about your book, Men and Women in Christ. Now, something that got me, I kept thinking as I was going through this book is, there are so many debates in the church today. Why this one? Why did you decide to write on this debate? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So how did I come to write this particular book? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, my background on it was that I was originally taught back in the 1960s and 1970s that church leaders must be men. And I suppose I accepted that then. Then when in the 1980s I was in a Baptist church and the question came up whether a woman could be elected as an elder. And that in that particular church, the issue had never really been looked at before. So we looked at what the Bible said and we read around the topic. And the best book at that time was a complementarian book by somebody called James Hurley. But although it was the best book available to us, the reasoning didn't quite seem to stack up. So we concluded that the egalitarians were probably right and that a woman could become a church elder. So this lady was duly elected and became an elder of the church and um, uh, things went on from there. But Mm -hmm. um, 20 years later, in a different city, my wife and I joined a local Anglican church and there we found the minister was a woman, which wasn't something we'd ever experienced before. And it seemed rather strange to us just at first, but after a couple of weeks, we really didn't notice it anymore. So we didn't really think much more about it. But I did do some more reading on the topic when I did my theology degree. Mm -hmm. And then much more recently, four things came together which prompted me to write the book. By this time, we were in a different church. Um, First, I became aware that, that this church we joined was signed up to something that was called the FIEC Women in Ministry Statement. And that was very firmly complementarian, which wasn't altogether a surprise or anything. But what I was surprised at when I read it was some of the reasoning, which didn't seem to sound right Mm. and didn't seem to me to reflect what the Bible actually said. So I started looking into the topic of women's ministry rather more seriously. So that was the first thing. Secondly, uh, we were in a home group in the church. And it was my turn to lead the study when we came to Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about submission in marriage. So I had to think about what that meant and what Paul meant when he talked about the husband as head and what he meant when he talked about submitting to one another. Mm -hmm. So that really got me going as well. And then thirdly, there was a, a, a woman who was new to our church who happened to ask me, if I had anything that I could give her that had been written on the topic of men and women, which was short and easy to read. Well, because I'd been looking into the subject, I had loads of stuff. So I emailed her two pieces, one from each side of the debate, and she read them. And her reaction after she'd read them was, well, look, these are so partisan. Isn't there anything more sort of balanced and less partisan? Mm-hmm. And uh, those three things all coincided with a major change in the emphasis of my legal work, where instead of acting for one party as counsel and arguing for one side, uh, by this time I was mostly acting in a judicial capacity, either as a judge in the ordinary courts or tribunals or as an international arbitrator. And of course, that requires a completely different mindset. You know, I'd had to learn, instead of supporting a case of one side, how to look at something objectively and just go with wherever the evidence and the reasoning leads without mm-hmm. any preconceived ideas about which side ought to win. Mm-hmm. And so it occurred to me, well, I've had to learn that for work. Why don't I apply the same approach to the debate about the Bible's teaching on men and women on, in marriage and in the church? Mm-hmm. Why don't I just sit down and write a book, read stuff from each side, examine the reasoning, look at the texts, and just see where I arrive? So I started writing without knowing what conclusions I would arrive at. I did have a few ideas about what the conclusions might be, but those turned out to be wrong. (laughs) So uh, uh, the final conclusions I reached were not the ones I expected. Mm -hmm. Now, let's be clear on the terms you're using. When you say the term egalitarian, what do you have in mind? When you say the term complementarian, what do you have in mind? Right. Well, complementarians are people who 
take the view that um, a husband must be the leader in a marriage mm -hmm. and some complementarians say he should be a leader in a hierarchical sense you know he has authority mm. for the wife whereas other complementarians don't agree with that but they say he, he leads as a sort of servant leader mm -hmm. and in the church they say that women shouldn't give authoritative teaching to men so the sort of common strand there is they see it as an issue of authority um, egalitarians in the present context are people who see no restriction on what a woman may do in, in a church setting as regards preaching or teaching or being a leader, and also see marriage as a more equal relationship than the complementarians see it. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's a bit different from the word egalitarian in some other contexts, where it's more to do with a sort of philosophical outlook, where everybody has equal rights and uh, should be free to exercise their rights. I'm not really talking about that. Mm -hmm. The discussion about what the Bible is teaching is is more about the issue of whether women may were the women are truly equal with men in all aspects of life including marriage and church mm -hmm. and now on my end i'll go ahead and tell you in the interest of full disclosure i lean much more towards the complementarian approach and it could be some that is the way i grew up and when i do see some like say a female pastor it is i'm not going to break out and stare some but it is something unusual still to me yeah. and my own saying about the household is I always tell husbands husbands if you have to quote Ephesians 5 to your wife you're not doing it right and if you do believe a husband a man is the king of his castle then guess what your wife gets treated like a queen yeah but let's start going through and seeing what you said now you said this all started with Ephesians 5 and, well, geez, Andrew, that seems pretty clear. I mean, it says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. So, uh, I mean, doesn't that kind of serve it? That's the pecking order. Wives, submit, right? Yeah, the, the, it certainly does say wives, submit to your husbands. Mm -hmm. um, the previous verse says submit to one another. Mm -hmm. And the argument between the two sides is whether the submitting to one another covers husbands as well. Mm -hmm. And I examined that at quite some length in the book uh -huh. and conclusion I come to is that Paul really means what he says he does mean to one another mm -hmm. and wives submitting to husbands is an example of that and then a little bit later in the same passage the husband acting um, in unselfish love towards his wife following the example of Christ as Savior mm -hmm. that's the equivalent of submitting mm -hmm. because he's putting her interests first instead of his own mm. and the part of the argument is about what that word submit really means mm -hmm. and um, there are a lot of complementarian scholars who say the word submit that's used there always carries with it a connotation of authority in the sense that it's one person is ranked above another person I think mm -hmm. that's a little bit of an exaggeration but I do agree with them that the idea of ranking is very important but the issue is is it an objective ranking you know is the husband really an authority over his wife as Paul sees it or mm. is Paul saying to the wife I want you to treat your husband as if he were an authority over you even mm. though you're equals mm -hmm. and uh, I came to the conclusion it was the second one of those that, mm -hmm. that he's saying I want Christian people to treat each other as more important than themselves and he says the same thing in a number of different places. Like in Philippians where he says, esteem each other better than yourselves. It's the same sort of principle. Okay, I can get that, but suppose you have a listener who's, now I'm going to tell them to get your book and be in, of course, but he was kind of him saying, you know, I'm not so sure you could be reading in the text. I mean, what are some basic reasons why you think this is the way it is? Well, uh, the argument of understanding Ephesians 5 is quite a complex one because you need to look at the whole passage in order to understand it. Mm -hmm. And when I looked into it very carefully of balancing each side, um, I found that um, on the complementarian side, the way it was explained tended to skip over certain very important features in that passage. Mm -hmm. uh, um, one of them is that 
in Ephesians, let me turn it up, Ephesians 5, where it says in verse 23, it refers to the Christ, the husband being head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, he himself being the savior of the body. Um, the, the way I saw it in the end was that Paul is there defining what he means by head. He's saying head just in the way that Christ is the saviour of the church. He doesn't say head in the way that Christ is the Lord of the church, because of course Christ is Lord of his church. But he's saying head like Christ being saviour of the church. And then he goes on to talk about the husband loving his wife and giving himself up for her as Christ loved the church. So he seems to be saying that the husband's calling is to follow the example of Christ's saviourhood rather than his lordship. Hello, this is Andy Bannister, the director of the Solas Centre for Public Christianity, and I'm delighted to endorse and uh, recommend the ministry of Deeper Waters Apologetics. I've been hugely impressed watching the work that Nick has done over the years, building up the website and the podcast, the quality of the guests that he gets onto there. And I love the way that uh, the ministry challenges and encourages both Christians and those who don't have a Christian faith to really think through the claims of the gospel. I'm also impressed by just how Christ-centred and Nicky is and all that he does is his desire to see people encounter Jesus Christ and the life-transforming truth of the gospel. So uh, more strength to them. It's been a privilege to know Nick over the years, and I hope Deeper Waters goes from strength to strength. And if you haven't yet discovered it, check out the website deeperwatersapologetics.com for yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's also another issue uh, in the very next verse, verse 24. In the Greek, verse 24 starts with the word but, which you're not going to see in most English versions, because in English versions, they've misunderstood what the verse 23 is saying. They've misunderstood head as Lord. Mm-hmm. And so but in the next verse doesn't make any sense, because the next verse says that wives ought to be subject to their husbands. How could that start with a but? And the answer is but, because he hasn't he's not saying that the husbands are lords he's saying the husbands are to behave like a saviour but even though they're supposed to behave like a saviour but nevertheless he wants the wife to treat her husband as if he were above her just as Mm -hmm. he wants the husband to treat his wife as if she were more important than him Mm -hmm. so I think when you look at the passage carefully some of the um, the hierarchical complementarian arguments really tend to fall away and you're left with with a different view. But I don't think you're left with egalitarianism because mm. you've still got Paul saying that the husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. And he seems to be putting a special emphasis on that. Mm-hmm. Now, egalitarians say, yeah, of course he does say that, but then everybody's called to love. Every Christian is called to love, following Christ's example. But Paul does seem to think here there's some special responsibility on the husband. To, to love his wife unselfishly because he goes on with some com- comparisons um, he compares he does a comparison between Christ and the church and between head and body and those are those are one way comparisons they're not reversible so he mm. seems to be saying look there is a special responsibility to on the husband in a Christian marriage to love his wife in the same way that Christ loves his people the church and gives himself up for them so on that passage, I ended up disagreeing with the people who have a hierarchical view of marriage, but agreeing with the complementarians that the husband has a special responsibility to love. And uh, on that, I, I don't really agree with the egalitarian position, which is that there's no difference at all between the responsibilities of husband and wife. I, think, and so, I think something else we should stress in all this is that both sides, there's a danger with culture. The egalitarians can look at the commentarians and say, well, see, we've grown up with this male-dominated culture, and you are just buying into that culture and reading it into the text. If you came to the text and just saw what it said, you know that you're misreading it. But then commentarians can look at egalitarians and say, well, you see, we're living in a culture that's becoming more and more equal, embracing equality on everything, and dangerously so as we get closer with homosexual relations and the transgender movement and things of that sort. And you all are leading 
into this with the whole idea of of men and women being so absolutely equal, you're reading your culture into the text. I mean, what can we do about this danger? Because both sides kind of have a point. Yeah, I agree with you that both sides have got a point on that. And I think when you look at what's been written on each side, quite often you get the impression that it is culture-driven, that you, mm-hmm. in the sense that people are finding what they're expecting to find. Mm-hmm. instead of looking carefully at what it actually says. And here I think this is where it's so helpful to understand the the similarity between uh, what I have to do in my professional work and what you have to do when you read the Bible. Because in my professional work, if I've, you know, suppose I'm reading letters written by one party to the other, you know, it, the letter might be written, say, by a Japanese person to someone from South America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to be very alive to cultural differences in order to understand and make sense of what's going on here and it's a bit the same with the bible when we read the bible we go back to ephesians 5 we should first of all think okay now first of all what was the culture in which paul was writing what was Mm -hmm. his own culture what was the culture of the people he was writing to you know what were the expectations (laughs) and how does this Mm -hmm. compare with what the expectations were so I, i do think it's very helpful indeed to to go back to Bible times and understand the culture in which people were writing because then you start to understand better I think what what's said and at the same time you need to be quite self-aware about your own culture and how that could affect things I mean there's a very good example in this passage is the use of the word head mm-hmm. the husband it says is head of the wife well in English the head in lots of different circumstances means the person in charge you know, the head of sales, the head of the school. But it doesn't necessarily mean it meant that in Greek in the first century. You need to go back and look and see, well, how was this word used if it was used metaphorically? You know, what were the options? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one of the things that I go into my book, and I look at that quite carefully because mm-hmm. um, there are some writings which haven't been as as cautious about that as they should have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, we're going to only be here for an hour today, but you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. we got Andrew Bartlett as our guest today discussing his book, Men and Women in Christ. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Hilary Ferrer on here talking about her book that she edited, Mama Bear Apologetics, Apologetics for Mothers. So I hope you're here next week, especially if you're a mother. Now, let's get back to Andrew and his book here. Now, one passage you said that complementarians seem to avoid, which I thought was pretty interesting, was 1 Corinthians 7, which is probably the most thorough treatment on marriage in the New Testament at all. And you, you even told me that, you even told me this book was saying, I'd never heard it before, but it's very hard to forget since it talks about sexual equalness that the husband submits his body to a wife and vice versa. What apparently we're saying is, man is the head except in bed. Yeah, that that was my summary of what Calvin taught about it. Mm-hmm. Because when, when Calvin wrote his commentary, um, he, he was obviously aware that um, in this passage, Paul says, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the husband doesn't have authority over his body, but the wife does. And that, but they shouldn't refuse each other except for a season to devote themselves to prayer. So when you look at the passage, you see that Paul is saying that the authority of the husband and the authority of the wife are at the same level. They have equal authority. And he, he says they ought to make joint decisions. Mm-hmm. And this applies to their sexual relationship, which, of course, is the physical heart of their marriage. It applies also to them deciding to put that on one side temporarily to devote themselves to prayer. So it applies to their prayer together, which is the spiritual heart of their relationship. So if Paul is saying they're equal in their physical relationship and equal in their spiritual relationship as they pray together, mm-hmm. it seems pretty strange that the, if he would then regard that as some sort of special exception to a general mm-hmm. Uh, position of the husband as being in authority over the wife mm-hmm. but that the, the way calvin got around it was to say well the husband's head except in bed uh he rather left on one side the point about prayer as well 
And of course, in his culture, that, that would have made sense to him because, you know, in his culture, the idea of equality was completely, of men and women, was just completely unknown. Mm-hmm. So that he just read it within his own culture, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, 1 Corinthians 7 is interesting that, that most complementarian books that you read say very little about it, which is a bit strange given that um, it's the longest chapter on, on marriage in the New Testament and on the relationship between men and women. Mm-hmm. And, so, uh, what can sorry. we get? What can we get? I mean, I know we've only got an hour here, and we've already done nearly half it. What briefly can we learn about marriage in this chapter? Well, from this chapter, we learn that husband and wife have equal authority; that they should make decisions jointly; that um, leadership by a husband that's thought of in terms of having a one-way authority over his wife is in conflict with this chapter. Mm-hmm. And then in the after Paul talks about marriage, he talks about a range of other situations related to marriage in the rest of the chapter, and it seems pretty clear from those that. Paul envisages a complete equality of personal relations between men and women. And when you read the whole of chapter 7, it's really very difficult to understand how he could have written it if he really thought that um, men and women were in a situation where a man was always in charge. He doesn't seem to have thought that. Of course, it doesn't mean he was an egalitarian in the modern sense. That would be a different thing altogether. Mm -hmm. But he is calling for each equal partner to yield in submission to the other in line with things he says about other Christian relationships in other places. Yeah, but can we say that Paul does know who's in charge? I mean, heck, later on in chapter 11, he says that man is the head of woman. I mean, that that does show who's in charge, doesn't it? I don't think so. Because you're reading head, Mm -hmm. again, through um, current culture, Mm -hmm. how we use head in English. Um. I think uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is, has been a very puzzling passage, and uh, but I think that, and there's been a big debate between egalitarians and complementarians over whether head in verse 3 of chapter 11 means, whether it's a metaphor meaning source or source of life, or whether it's a metaphor meaning authority over. There's been mm-hmm. a big debate about that. Um, but when I came to look at the, the, Paul's reasoning in chapter 11 carefully, I I came to the conclusion that head as authority just doesn't fit what he writes. And I I give 12 different reasons for that in my book. Obviously can't go through all those now. No. But uh, I call them red lights. (laughs) I found, I think it was 12 red lights that that just indicate that that can't be what Paul means. And he is thinking about source. And in fact, he goes on to talk specifically about sources in the chapter he talks about how man was made in the Genesis story from woman. Sorry, mm-hmm. woman was made from man. Right. Which is about source. Mm-hmm. And that's, his, that's his, uh, his sort of unifying, his theological idea in this chapter is about sources. You can see it from the order in which he talks in verse 3 as well, which isn't hierarchical. Mm. It's in, in more sort of a chronological sort of order. Well, or a logical sort of order. Andrew, I might be able to go ahead. So there are there are a number of indications when you start to look carefully. I mean, another one is in verse 10. Verse 10 is mistranslated quite often to say mm. that a woman ought to have a sign or a symbol of authority on her head, but it's not what it says. It says a woman ought to have authority over her head. In other words, she has to decide to wear her hair appropriately for worship. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole whole range of things which people who read the book can, can discover. I mean, when I started looking at 1 Corinthians 11, I was perfectly open to either possibility being right. Just went where the reasons and the evidence took me.
You knew that might work for one passage. And if that was the only one we had, that could make sense. But, geez, we've also got, you know, 1 Corinthians 14 talks about, you know, that uh, those women, they need to stay silent in church, as in all the churches, according to the law. And if they have a question, they need to ask their husbands at home. That kind of settles it, doesn't it? Yeah, that's quite an interesting and a strange passage. Um, I've got two chapters on that in the book. In the first chapter, what I look at is different people's interpretations of that, um, both currently and uh, to some extent in church history. And the conclusion I come to is that nobody has found a satisfying way of reading those two verses in a way that's consistent mm -hmm. with everything that's around them. Mm -hmm. um, there's a real issue there because um, Paul is quite explicit in chapter 11 that women can pray or prophesy. And then all mm -hmm. the way through chapters 12 to 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts and emphasizing that everyone is gifted. And he mm -hmm. talks about how when the congregation comes together, you know, one person has a hymn, another a lesson, another one a revelation, another one a tongue, an interpretation, a prophecy, and so forth. And he's talking about men and women generally. Mm -hmm. So when you get to verse 34, and you suddenly have this word about women should be silent, it's in complete conflict with everything up to the previous verse. Mm -hmm. And so they've really struggled and struggled and struggled to make sense of it and come up with all sorts of different theories, none of which has been found generally satisfying. What makes the problem particularly acute is that uh, Paul says it three times, this thing about silence. He says women should be silent, then he says they're not permitted to speak, and then he says it's shameful for a woman to speak. And in... Uh, the Greco-Roman discourse and Jewish discourse as well at the time, if you want to say something with maximal emphasis, you say it three times. Mm -hmm. So he, he seems to be emphasizing mac maximally that this is what, what he means, complete silence, which is completely inconsistent with the rest. So my conclusion in, in the first chapter where I deal with that is that nobody has found a good way of understanding that that makes it consistent with the rest of what he wrote. And uh, I go through that in, in that in some detail. And then in the next chapter, I look at the big discussion over whether actually those two verses were originally written by Paul or whether they were added somehow to, into his letter. And uh, the conclusion I've come to is that the people who say those two verses are added are, are right. Well, doesn't that just seem a bit convenient, though? I mean, we've got a passage that's a problem passage, so... And let's just remove it. I agree, it does sound convenient. Mm -hmm. But of course, you, you've got to look at what the evidence is. Mm -hmm. And the evidence here is is quite unusual, because here you've got a passage which appears in two different places in different manuscripts. Mm -hmm. So um, most Bibles have these verses, from, you know, from the way they're numbered. They're verses 34 and 35. But other some manuscripts have them after verse 40 or what we call verse 40 mm -hmm. so the so passage has, has got into two different places in the manuscripts and you have to work out well how could that have happened because scribes didn't just move stuff willy-nilly you know if someone was going to move something they would have to be absolutely convinced that it didn't fit where it was and absolutely convinced that moving it to the other position solved the problem and no one's come up with any satisfying theory as to how a scribe could have thought that about moving those verses from one position to the other because the conflict is just the same whichever position they're in. So mm -hmm. moving them doesn't solve anything. Mm -hmm. So you've got to think, well, how could these verses end up in two different places? And the theory that seems to make the most sense is that when Paul's letters were being put together into a collection to be copied for distribution to the churches, somebody wrote a marginal comment along the lines that women should be silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak. And the reason somebody might have written that comment at the time when Paul's letters were being collected was that 
by that time, churches were becoming much more public, sort of instead of just meeting in homes, they'd be meeting in public halls or basilicas and so forth, so that um, much more care had to be taken over what was acceptable. Because, of course, Christians wanted the message to spread, and they were very keen that more people should become Christians. So they didn't want a situation where somebody would come in and they'd be shocked because women were speaking in the service or leading the service. And so somebody thinking, well, look, we've got, to, we've got to somehow put into practice the guidance that we've got from Paul. And, um, you know, earlier in the same letter, he says, you shouldn't give offense to anybody, to Jews or Greeks or to the church. Try to please everyone. And he says, I'm not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. So he's saying, look, limit your Christian liberty for the sake of people who come in. Mm-hmm. So somebody might very well have thought, well, look, the situation's changed now from when Paul originally wrote this. Let's say 10, 20 years earlier. Who knows what exact timing it was? And thought, look, we really shouldn't be allowing women to speak in public because in Jewish assemblies, it wasn't normal for women to speak in public. In the Greek assembly, it was forbidden. In a Roman assembly, it was forbidden. And so people would be shocked. So it looks like what's happened is somebody writes a comment in the margin, quite a sensible comment, mm-hmm. given the situation at the time. Look, we ought to be following Paul's command in chapter 13 to love other people, to restrict our own rights if that's going to help somebody else. So somebody writes a comment about what's appropriate in a public assembly now. And then when the when the letter's been circulated, some later scribe thinks, oh, here's something in the margin. It must have been left out when the copy was done. And so he puts it into the main text. Mm-hmm. And then another scribe does the same. But of course, he doesn't. you can't tell exactly where it was supposed to go. So another scribe puts it in in a different place. Okay. So that's, that's the, the gist of the theory about how we can explain the fact that these verses come in two different places. Mm. And if Paul didn't write them, then of course it all makes a lot more sense. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is supported by ordinary people or listeners out there, just like yourselves. And I really want to encourage you to go to our website at deeperwatersapologetics.com and there's a link there on the side to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Where you click on that link and you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus, you've gone to the right place here. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation. You can get in touch with me or my wife, Ari, or Mike, or Debbie, and say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will give that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also so um, go and buy an e-book that I have written, such as, where well, the only one I've written is a creed, the, the Apostles, <coughs> a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. Or one that's have co-written defying inerrancy and contextualizing inerrancy and God and natural disasters, groundless Christian answers of this generation's questions. And if you can't do any of these, then please go on, on uh, iTunes and leave a positive review for a Deeper Waters podcast. It really means so much to me when I get to see them. It, it's such a delight to know you are like the show and things of that sort and such. So please leave something to tell me. Yeah, the show makes a difference to you. Now, Andrew, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? I've got nothing in mind at the moment. You you just mention your own. That's fine. Okay. Now let's go into a passage that's really much more difficult to deal with. I think. And this is in First Timothy 2 where we're told, for instance, I don't let a woman have authority over a man, and there's so much in there, women will be saved through childbirth, a woman was deceived, not for man, over and over, etc. What are we to make of this passage? Because really, it seems crystal clear. Yeah, it's a very interesting passage, and one on which there's been a lot of debate. Um, 
could I say sort of where I started out before I tell you where I finished? Absolutely. Where I started out, where I started out on this was when I started writing the book, what I imagined that I was going to find when I looked into this in detail, because I, obviously I'd read quite a few complementarian books and quite a few egalitarian books before I started. What I thought I was going to find was that the arguments about how to understand that passage were, were very finely balanced. And so it was going to be quite difficult to say who was right. Because on the complementarian side, people say, look, this is a clear statement that um, a woman shouldn't have authority over a man in the church. And on the egalitarian side, people were saying, no, 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 this is dealing with a particular situation that arose in Ephesus to which Paul was writing. It's dealing with that situation. It's not making a general rule to be applied in different kinds of situations. And when I read the arguments about those, it seemed to me that there was quite a lot to be said on both sides. So I was expecting to um, end up by my conclusion, I thought was most likely to be, this is a very finely balanced point and you really just have to make your own mind up. Um, but that isn't where I ended up finally, because where I ended up was... Um, I wasn't persuaded by any of the particular egalitarian interpretations that I read, but nor was I persuaded that the complementarian interpretation of it fitted the context. Mm. And I ended up with with a kind of egalitarian interpretation of it, but a different one from the ones that had previously been put forward. Mm -hmm. And there were quite a few reasons for that. I don't know if you want to go through it in stages. It's quite a complex passage, as you said. Yeah, we've got about 15 minutes of discussion and such, so let's do as much as you can. Well, I think it's good to realize what some of the difficulties are for each side when you look at this passage. For the egalitarians, um, th they struggle because they're trying to find a situation which they which you can actually prove from evidence actually existed in Ephesus and show how Paul's words actually apply to that particular situation. If they could do that, then of course you'd be convinced that they're right about it. But they keep, you know, there are various different theories and they mm -hmm. seem to each run up against various problems, either that either it can't be proved that that situation was a situation which was occurring at the time or else the situation doesn't seem to quite fit what Paul's writing. So they do struggle. Then on the complementarian side, that they struggle as well because there are so many sort of different aspects that that are difficult to explain, um, which include the nature of Paul's reasoning. And you know, the most fundamental one is is is, is his wording when he's he's starting that little bit by saying, "I permit, I don't permit. I'm not permitting a woman to do this." Well, if you say I'm not permitting something. It presupposes you're talking about a situation where you've got jurisdiction over particular people. Yeah, I mean, you, of course, if you're using physical force, you could say I don't permit something, but that's, it doesn't apply there. But normally, if we use the word permit, we're talking about a situation where they're entitled to either permit it or not permit it. You know, if you say to your children, I don't permit you to go into the street and play after eight o'clock at night, then you say that because you've got the power to permit them or not permit them to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so Paul must be thinking of a limited context here from the words, I do not permit. He's, he's, he's talking about people he's got jurisdiction over. But then, of course, the complementarians say, oh, but look at the nature of the reasoning of verses 13 and 14. He says talking about Adam and Eve. So if he's talking about Adam and Eve, he must intend a general rule. In other words, yes, we can accept that he was talking about a particular situation, talking about particular people who he had jurisdiction over, but because he gives a reason based on the story of Adam and Eve, this must apply generally, which sounds like it's a good point in favor of the complementarian view until you start thinking about it. And you think, but just a minute, um, if he's making a general point from Adam and Eve, and his general point is that men should be in charge, well, then that would have to apply across the whole of life. You know, if, if, if the creation story is really telling us men are in charge, how could you possibly limit that just to marriages and to the church? 
if the creation story is really treating that, you'd be saying, right, men should be in charge of everything. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's how, that's how it was read for generations. But complementarians don't agree men should be in charge of everything. Complementarians say, oh, no, 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 we accept equality of the sexes because we can see other scriptures that clearly teach that. And so we're only saying men should be in charge in marriage and in the church. But how does that make any sense? You know, if, if Paul's reasoning is from Adam and Eve, and if he's really saying there's some principle there about men being in charge, then it, it should apply across the board. So you've got the complementarian reasoning tied up in knots because it, it can't make sense. So there are difficulties on both sides. And the more I looked at this, the more it seemed to me that part of the problem is that both sides, mostly, just with a few exceptions, have been reading this chapter as if it's about public worship. You know, what happens in the assembly when people get together for worship? It isn't about that. And there, you can see when you look carefully that it can't be about that. Because, for example, he talks about, when he's talking about what women should do in verses 9 and 10, he's saying um, they, sh- they should dress modestly, not with hair braided and golden poles and expensive clothes and so forth, but with good works. Mm-hmm. As it's proper for women who profess reverence to God. So he, he's saying um, they should be dressed with good works. In other words, that's the important thing for women to be doing, is not, not dressing up, but doing good works. Well, that's not in the assembly. They don't do their good works just in the assembly. This is, he's talking about the whole of life. Well, what about verse 15? She'll be saved through the childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Childbearing didn't take place in the assembly. <laughs> you know, whatever he means by that verse, and a lot of people have struggled with it, Whatever he means, however you read the word childbearing, he's not talking about something that's happening in the public assembly of the church. So I, I, th- I think the discussion very often gets off on the wrong foot, as thinking this is about the public assembly, when, when you actually look at the details, it can't be about the public assembly. It must be much broader in its application. Well, what do you think it's more, about? Well, the more I looked at this, the more it seemed to me that there were some pretty important clues further on in the letter Because in chapter 5, there's a a large part of chapter 5 is about women. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I wonder if chapter 5 gives us any clue about the people that Paul was writing to Timothy to say he had to deal with. Because if you go back to the very beginning of the letter, Paul is referring to the instructions that he gave to Timothy to instruct certain people not to teach falsely. But he doesn't say who the people are. He just says certain people. Because, of course, Timothy knows who they are. <laughs> he doesn't need to name them. And he probably doesn't want to name them because his letter will get read and he, he doesn't want to shame them. He wants Timothy to deal with them without them being um, publicly shamed. Mm-hmm. And if you, then in, uh, what I found was in chapter 5, there are some clues about who these people are. And, it, and the conclusion I came to is that there are some rich women in Ephesus, who are going around passing on false teaching because they've become involved in magic. And this is not surprising at Ephesus, because if you remember the story in Acts about Paul's ministry in Ephesus, there were a lot of people who practiced magic arts and they brought their very expensive books and they were burned after they became Christians. Mm There's a big background of, of magic in Ephesus. And in fact, you know, we think the Ephesian letter is what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. But if you were in Ephesus and you said, can I have an Ephesian letter? It meant you wanted to buy a magic spell. Mm. Ephesian letters were magic spells. That's what an Ephesian letter was. Um, so magic was really big in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. And obviously I go into it in the book in a lot more detail, but the gist is that the, the, the conclusion I came to was that the people Timothy has to deal with next, because he's already, Paul has already dealt with two male false teachers who are named in the letter. He's already took, put them out of the church. Hymenaeus and Alexander, he's turned them out. Now he wants Timothy to deal with the people who remain who are teaching falsely, and that seems to me to be these rich women who are involved in magic. Mm-hmm. No. So, so what Paul is saying is that he doesn't want one, one of these women to be allowed to, to teach and overpower a man. 
because uh, these women have men in their sights, as you can see from chapter five. Mm -hmm. They're rich widows. They're looking for a man. And uh, Paul wants to protect people. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what it's all about. Hi, this is Gary Habermas. I'm the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I teach full-time in the PhD program here. And I have been a guest on the program by Nick Peters on many occasions. And over the years, I've noticed how many excellent guests he gets. And I can tell you personally that Nick reads everything that comes his way. He's a great interviewer. He's got good insight and questions. And I highly recommend his program. Now, it... Obviously, your book's not going to be the last word on a subject. No book ever no, is sure like that. But what are yeah. some ways that we can keep this debate going in a better way? I mean, one thing you definitely bring out is that this shouldn't be a gospel issue. Yes, one of the big points I make in my book is that, first of all, we should be remembering how important Christian unity is to God. Mm-hmm. You know, it, people claim to be Bible followers and Bible believers and evangelical Christians. If they claim that, then they need to take notice of what the Bible says about Christian unity. Jesus prayed that his followers would all be one. Paul said, make every effort to maintain unity. Mm. And I think that those instructions are just as important as any of the other instructions that we're given in the New Testament about how to follow Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But unity is really important. And unity, to, to, to do that, making every effort involves believing the best of the people you're having the discussion with. Don't attribute bad motives to them. Don't assume the worst. Don't assume they've got closed minds. Don't assume they're prejudiced or stupid. Mm. We need to listen to each other carefully and discuss as brothers and sisters. Because at the end of the day, this whole issue about complementarians and egalitarians is a question of what does the Bible really teach about this? It's an issue of interpretation. Mm -hmm. There are, of course, people who deal with the issue entirely differently simply by throwing out the Bible. They say, oh, the Bible's too old-fashioned, we can't worry with that anymore. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking about the debate among people who try and work out what it means to follow Jesus Christ on the basis of what we read in the New Testament. So for, for people who are trying to do that, we need to work out what did Jesus really mean? What did Paul really mean? What did Peter really mean when they wrote some of these passages that we struggle to understand now? Mm -hmm. well, afterwards. I'm curious if so far you've received any the uh, feedback from any major complementarians or egalitarians, perhaps even ones you wrote about in the book? Um, I think it's early days for that at the moment, because the book is quite long, 400 and something pages, and mm -hmm. it'll take a while to study it carefully. The feedback I have had, um, obviously before the book was published, it was shown to a wide range of different people, some with complementarian views and some with egalitarian views, and you'll find the comments just inside the front cover. There's about five pages of them. Mm -hmm. um, and people have received it um, quite favorably, I would say. Um, I didn't receive any negative comments. I mean, we published all in the front cover all the comments we received. Mm. And um, they're all fairly enthusiastic about the book. Mm -hmm. And I think people felt that because I'd taken a different approach to it, um, looking at it, more dispassionately. After all, I didn't mind what conclusions I was going to come to. I just wanted to see what, what the conclusions were. Because I looked at it more dispassionately and, and very much emphasized understanding the culture and also following the flow of the argument. That, that's one of the problems with quite a lot of the interpretations is things, into, for example, take the complementarian mm -hmm. interpretation of, of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Their interpretation starts by considering what Paul is saying from chapter two, verse eight onwards, but you don't need, you shouldn't start there. You need to start at chapter one, verse one, and read through, see what the trail of the argument is and what the flow is and how Paul moves from one thing to the next and how his thought is developed through that, because it's all one continuous flow. 
similar problem in 1 Corinthians 11. It's once you understand what Paul is saying, it's all one continuous flow. It all makes sense. It's logical steps. Mm-hmm. Each thing follows from the thing before. And the reason I, I look at it that way is because that's what I've had to learn to do um, in a context where I have to understand letters written by people or contracts written by people. I've got to understand this from the start, otherwise I'm not going to understand it at all. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring assumptions which aren't, which aren't correct. So that's been fairly positive, and I've had a few reviews on Amazon Code at UK or Amazon.com. So far, all five star, but of course, I've found a change in time. No doubt somebody will hate it and give, give me a one star, but it hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious also, since you did this so well with, because this is a book that's going to give everyone something to think about. Are you considering writing about any other debates, age of the earth, end times, anything like that? I'm sorry, are you saying, am I thinking of writing a book on some other debate? On some other debates, like the age of the earth or the end times or anything like that? Well, I have been thinking about that a bit, but I haven't at the moment come to any Mm -hmm. definite views as to something that I should write about. But Mm -hmm. yes, I think quite a lot of debates that would merit a fresh look, particularly because um, there is so much that's written which simply starts with a lot of assumptions and then is designed to try and prove one particular point of view rather than starting with, well, actually, what we really want to know is what does the Bible really teach about this, you know, without being pre-committed to a particular answer. And I do think if people are in academic situations, it can be very difficult for them to do that, particularly in the US if if they're in a college which holds to one particular line. Mm-hmm. They've had to agree to that line in order to become an employee of that college and for them to start having doubts about whether it's correct. It takes a lot of courage mm-hmm. um, and a lot of um, heart searching for people to decide, no, I can't go with that anymore because I'm just not convinced it's right. It's a very, very big and difficult step for people to take. Mm-hmm. The same is true with church leaders. You know, if you've taught your church for years one particular view, and, or you're in one particular denomination that has a particular view and then you change your mind, well, you're, you know, you're out of a job because you've mm-hmm. got to go somewhere else because you're not, your view no longer fits in. And um, so I've had a sort of a freedom, which I think a lot of people don't have because I'm not currently involved in any church leadership. So I don't have to, don't have to defend any particular line. And, um, you know, I'm not signed up to any college where, where I have to agree to toe the line on any particular doctrine. So, you know, I'm able to say to myself, you know, my commitment is to Jesus Christ. I think to follow him faithfully, I need to stick with the New Testament. What does it actually say? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and I don't mind whether it's pro or anti any of the particular views that have been much pushed by one group or a different group. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to... Thank you for coming on. Do you have a blog, a website, and email where people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Uh, I don't, no. Okay. I mean, if if, um, if people did want to email me, you can discover my email if you do a bit of Google searching <laughs> because you'll find my professional website. So you could email me at my professional address. Okay, and here I thought I'd done a lot of Google searching. <laughs> oh, well. Okay. Now, the book is Men and Women in Christ. As of time of this recording, the hardcover version is twenty three sixty five on Prime, and a Kindle version is twenty two forty seven. Um, Andrew, do you have any final words you'd like to leave for a Deeper Waters audience? I'd just like to say thank you very much for having me, mm-hmm. and it's been nice to talk to you, mm-hmm. and I hope that people who read the book enjoy it even a fraction of how much I enjoyed writing it because Mm -hmm. I found it was a wonderful experience actually to get into the Bible in a much more deep and precise and thorough and consistent way than I I had done for a while and what the impression it left me with was wow what a clever writer Paul was what a clever writer Peter was Mm. you know their, their letters are so beautifully constructed and I just hadn't seen it Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, you know, I, I came away from writing the book more than anything impressed, not by the topic I was writing about, but impressed with the quality of Paul's writing and Peter's writing. Mm-hmm. 
uh, that was that was a new thing for me. Obviously, I always realised Paul was a great writer, um, and Peter was very important in the history of the church. But I hadn't quite seen just how carefully they wrote their letters, and how beautifully their thoughts develop. And uh, that that's something that really impressed me. Mm-hmm. And I like to say that of you know about yeah, this is a book that you're definitely going no matter where you come inside, you're definitely going to find something to like. And well, Andrew, thanks for coming on. Hopefully, we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you, Nick. Bye bye. And I like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Hilary Ferrer on here talking about her book, Mama Bear Apologetics. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>